Section 8 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.K. Edison, New Jersey. Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 8. Samuel Adams, Part 1. The body of the people are now in council. Their opposition grows into a system. They are united and resolute. And if the British administration and government do not return to the principles of moderation and equity, the evil which they profess to aim at preventing by their rigorous measures will the sooner be brought to pass, namely, the entire separation and independence of the colonies. Letter to Arthur Lee Samuel and John Adams were second cousins, having the same great-grandfather. Between them, in many ways, there was a marked contrast, but true to their New England instincts, both were theologians. John was a conservative in politics, and at first had little sympathy with, quote, those small-minded men who refused to pay a trivial tax on their tea, and who would plunge the country into war and ruin all for a matter of stamps, unquote. John was born and lived at the village of Braintree, he did not really centre his mind in politics until the British had closed all law courts in Boston, thus making his profession obsolete. He was scholarly, shrewd, diplomatic, cautious, good-natured, fat, and took his religion with a wink. He was blessed with a wife who was worthy of being the mother of kings, or precedents. He lived comfortably, acquired property, and died aged ninety-two. He had been president, and seen his son president of the United States, and that is an experience that has never come, and probably never will come to another living man, for there seems to be an unwritten law that no man under fifty shall occupy the office of chief magistrate of these United States. Samuel was stern, serious, and deeply in earnest. He seldom smiled, and never laughed. He was uncompromisingly religious, conscientious, and morally unbending. In his life there was no soft sentiment. The fact that he ran a brewery can be excused when we remember that the best spirit of the times saw nothing inconsistent in the occupation. And further than this, we might explain in extenuation that he gave the business indifferent attention, and the quality of his brew was said to be very bad. In religion he swerved not, nor wavered. He was a Calvinist and clung to the five points with a tenacity at times seemingly quite unnecessary. When, in that first Congress, Samuel Adams publicly consented to the opening of the meeting with religious service conducted by the Reverend Mr. Dutch, an Episcopal clergyman, he gave a violent wrench to his conscience and an awful shock to his friends. But Mr. Dutch met the issue in the true spirit, and leaving his detested, quote, popery robe, end quote, and prayer book at home, uttered an extemporaneous invocation without a trace of intoning that pleased the Puritans and caused one of them to remark, quote, He is surely coming over to the Lord's side. End quote. But in politics, Samuel Adams was a liberal of the liberals. In statecraft, the heresy of change had no terrors for him, and with Hamlet he might have said, quote, Oh, reform it altogether. End quote. The limitations set in every character seemed to prevent a man from being generous in more than one direction. The bigot in religion is often a liberal in politics, and vice versa. 
For instance, physicians are almost invariably liberal in religious matters, but are prone to call a man Mr. who does not belong to their school, while orthodox clergymen, I have noticed, usually employ a homeopathist. In that most valuable and interesting work, quote, The Diary of John Adams, end quote, the author refers repeatedly to Samuel Adams as Adams. This simple way of using the word Adams shows a world of appreciation for the man who blazed the path that others of this illustrious name might follow. And so, with the high precedent in mind, I too will drop prefix and call my subject simply Adams. On the authority of King George, General Gage made an offer of pardon to all, save two, who had figured in the Boston uprising. The two men thus honoured were John Hancock, whose signature the king could read without spectacles, and the other was, quote, one S. Adams, end quote. Adams, however, was the real offender, and the plea might have been made for John Hancock that if it had not been for accident and Adams, Hancock would probably have remained loyal to the mother country. Hancock was aristocratic, cultured, and complacent. He was the richest man in New England. His personal interests were on the side of peace and the established order. But circumstances and the combined tact and zeal of Adams threw him off his guard and in a moment of dalliance the seed of sedition found lodgment in his brain. And the more he thought about it, the nearer he came to the conclusion that Adams was right. But let the fact further be stated, if truth demands, that both John Hancock and Samuel Adams, the first men who clearly and boldly expressed the idea of American independence, were moved in the beginning by personal grievances. A single motion made before the British Parliament by we know not whom, and put to vote by the Speaker, bankrupted the father of Samuel Adams and robbed the youth of his patrimony. The boy was then seventeen, old enough to know that from plenty his father was reduced to penury, and this because England, three thousand miles away, had interfered with the business arrangements of the colony and made unlawful a private banking scheme. Then did the boy ask the question, what moral right has England to govern us, anyway? From thinking it over, he began to formulate reasons. He discussed the subject at odd times and thought of it continually, and in 1743, when he prepared his graduation thesis at Harvard College, he chose for the subject, quote, the doctrine of the lawfulness of resistance to the supreme magistrate if the commonwealth cannot otherwise be preserved, end quote. When Massachusetts admitted that she was under subjection to the king, yet argued for the right to nullify the acts of the Eighth Parliament, she took exactly the same ground that South Carolina did a hundred years later. The logic of Samuel Adams and of Robert Hayne was one and the same. Yet we are glad that Adams carried his point, and we rejoice exceedingly that Hayne failed. So curious are these things we call, quote, reasons, end quote. The royalists who heard of this youth with a logical mind denounced him without stint. A few newspapers upheld him and spoke of the right of free speech and all that, reprinting the theses in full. And in the controversy that followed, young Adams was always a prominent figure. He was not an orator in the popular sense, but he held the pen of a ready writer, and through the Boston papers kept up a constant fusillade. The tricks of journalism are no new thing belonging to the fag end of the century. Young Adams wrote letters over the nom de plume of pro bono publico, and then replied to them over the signature of Rex Americus. 
He did not attempt, as his motto, quote, Let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, end quote, for he wrote with both hands, and each hand was in the secret. During the years that followed his graduation from college, he was a businessman, and a poor one, for a man who looks after public affairs much cannot attend to his own. But he managed to make shift, and when too closely pressed by creditors, a loan from Hancock or John Adams, Hancock's attorney, relieved the pressure. In fact, when he went to Philadelphia, quote, on that very important errand, end quote, he rode a horse borrowed from John Adams, and his Sunday coat was a gift of a thoughtful friend. In 1763, it became known that the British government had on foot a scheme to demand a tribute from the colonies. On invitation of a committee, possibly appointed by Adams, Adams was requested to draw up instructions to the representatives of the colonial legislature. Adams did so, and the document is now in the archives of the old state house at Boston, in the plain and elegant penmanship that is so easily recognized. This document calls itself, quote, the first public denial of the right of the British Parliament to tax the colonies without their consent, and the first public suggestion of a union on the part of the colonies to protect themselves against British aggression. End quote. The style of the paper is lucid, firm, and logical. It combines in itself the suggestion of all there was to be said or could be said on the matter. Adams saw all over and around his topic. No unpleasant surprise could be sprung on him. Twenty-five years had he studied this one theme. He had made himself familiar with the political history of every nation so far as such history could be gathered. He was past master of his subject. However, when he was forty years of age, his followers were few and mostly men of small influence. The Calcars Club was the home of the sedition, and many of the members were day laborers. But the idea of independence gradually grew, and in 1765, Adams was elected a member of the Massachusetts colonial legislature. In honor of his writing ability, he was chosen clerk of the assembly, for in all public gatherings, orators were chosen as presidents and newspapermen for secretaries. Thus are honors distributed, and thus, too, does the public show which talent it values most. On November 2nd, 1772, on motion of Adams, the committee of several hundred citizens was appointed, quote, to state the rights of the colonies and to communicate and publish them to the world as a sense of the town, with the infringements and violations thereof that have been or may be made from time to time, also requesting from each town a free communication of their sentiments on this subject. End quote. This was a committee of correspondence from which grew the Union of the Colonies and the Congress of the United States. It is a pretty well-attested fact that the first suggestion of the Philadelphia Congress came from Samuel Adams, and the chief work of bringing it about was also his. It was well known to the British government who the chief agitator was, and when General Gage arrived in Boston in May 1774, his first work was an attempt to buy off Samuel Adams. With Adams out of the way, England might have adopted a policy of conciliation and kept America for her very own. Yes, to the point of moving the home government here and saving the snug little island as a colony, for both in wealth and in population, America has now far surpassed England. But Adams was not for sale. His reply to Gage sounds like a scrap from Cromwell. Quote, I trust I have long since made my peace with the King of Kings. 
no personal consideration shall induce me to abandon the righteous cause of my country. End quote. Gage, having refused to recognize the thirteen councillors appointed by the people, the General Court of Massachusetts, in secret session, appointed five delegates to attend the Congress of Colonies at Philadelphia. Of course, Samuel Adams was one of these delegates, and to John Adams, another delegate, are we indebted for a minute description of that most momentous meeting. A room in the State House had been offered the delegates, but with commendable modesty they accepted the offer of the Carpenters' Company to use their hall. End of section 8